0: Poultry being descendants of the jungle fowl, jungles, or forests.
1: Sure. So
0: they are forest species in a way. So they prefer this type of habitat over uh, open grassland fields, for instance, uh, that we often offer free-range birds.
2: A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at eastman.com. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry.
3: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Poultry Podcast. My name is Jason Emmert, and today we're visiting with Dr. Leonie Jacobs, who is an associate professor in the Department of Animal and Poultry Sciences at Virginia Tech University. Dr. Jacobs has two Master of Science degrees in Animal Health and Behavior from Wageningen University in the Netherlands and Animal Welfare and Ecology from the Swedish Agricultural University as well as a Ph.D. in veterinary sciences from Ghent University in Belgium. Dr. Jacobs' research focuses on improvement of production animal welfare through win-win situations where both animals and people can profit. Dr. Jacobs, welcome once again to the Poultry Podcast. You've joined us before, but we sure appreciate you spending more time with us. And I think to to get us started, we'd like to hear a little bit about your academic journey, I think especially for listeners who didn't hear your first podcast, perhaps. Just kind of tell us how you ended up where you are.
1: Sure,
0: yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be back. It's always uh, great to be invited, so thank you. Yeah, my uh, academic journey, I started thinking, wanting to work with animals. I think a lot of people start that way, that either go the veterinary route or maybe the animal science route. Sure.
1: Um,
0: Then I soon learned that veterinary medicine was not for me and actually thought it was quite boring Mm -hmm. to just do all the fine work, um, like the surgeries. Not that I've ever done one, but I was there as an intern. So then animal science came along and I thought that was very interesting. I enjoyed research very much and the idea to have the ability to potentially help a lot of animals based on research and hopefully finding ways that it makes it still interesting for producers too.
4: Exciting news for poultry enthusiasts. Join us at the forefront of innovation as Phage Lab takes center stage at the International Production and Processing Expo, IPPE, in Atlanta from January 30th to February 1st, 2024. Tune in for an exclusive presentation on Tuesday, January 30th, where Phage Lab will unveil their tailored Bacteriophage cocktail, showcasing successful reduction of salmonella in poultry farms. Don't miss out on this groundbreaking insight. Yeah, I think this
3: idea, and, and I see it with so many of our undergrads, um, but not certainly not just here. We see it lots of places. The idea that the only way to help animals is, is through veterinary medicine. It's, it's mm-hmm. so prevalent, but there's so many other ways to, to help, whether if you're worried about animal conservation, well, studying genetics is a great idea. And if you want to help animals, I mean, the whole, the whole world of animal welfare and all the research around that is a great way to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Well, I think um, for this podcast, I'm really excited to hear about silvo pasture systems for poultry. And I will readily admit um, any any information I've countered, uh, encountered around silvopasture systems would be more with you know larger animals, with ruminants, grazing animals. So I'm really excited to hear uh, about this. And so, yeah, wherever you would like to start with that, I think w- would be great. And let's just talk about that for a bit.
0: Sure. Yeah. I understand that it may not sound as common like with other yeah. bigger species, right. but it's Definitely a very promising system for poultry as well, especially yeah. with poultry being descendants of the jungle fowl, jungles, or yeah. forests. Sure. So they are forest species in a way. So they prefer this type of habitat over uh, open grassland fields, for instance, that, that we often offer free range birds. And when we talk about silvopasture pasture systems, this is an agroforestry approach. So this is where uh, livestock, in this case poultry, are grown on the same plot of land as some type of uh, vegetation. So this could be trees for timber, but it could also be trees that uh, have fruit that are harvested or even uh, trees for biomass like um, willows and things like that. So. It's the combination of multiple production, so animals and trees in most yeah. cases, and sometimes also forage, like grasses, in the same plot of land.
3: Right, right. Interesting. Is, is there potential there for, um, for mixing species, for not having just poultry but other, other animals? I'm not sure if it, does it work better or worse, depending on the, the mix of animals you have there?
0: Um, I have no experience with that myself. I know that where we performed the experiments at the agricultural uh, site from Virginia Tech in the Shenandoah Valley, they use uh, mostly cattle in the fields that Mm -hmm. we've uh, placed our birds on. So you can combine it. I'm not sure if you can do it at the same time, especially with poultry needing a bit more uh, rigorous fencing than
1: cattle. Right. Need to right. But uh, yeah. you can
0: definitely rotate them.
3: Sure. That was one thing I was interested in the, the fencing and the best way, yeah, the best way to contain. Um, so what, what type of enclosure is really needed for this system?
0: The enclosures, especially with broiler chickens are mostly to uh, keep predators out yeah, and keep the birds in. But uh, we've worked in our experiment with fast-growing broilers, the more conventional uh, broiler chicken type.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They didn't have much of a risk of getting out of the pot. They're not that uh, mobile, I guess. So uh, what we used was fencing that had a low electrical current, mm-hmm. uh, just like the mobile poultry fencing that you can get at any uh, sure. sort of store that sells yeah. that type of equipment
3: do you foresee this being more common than for a for a broiler kind of application or would there be applications for for laying type birds
0: it, it is probably uh, more appropriate for laying hands just because they will use the pasture more they are more prone oh, yeah. to being active foraging uh, interacting with the environment a bit more than uh fast-growing broilers especially, and it has been applied more with laying hands than with broiler chicken. So that was one of the reasons that I was really excited about this project was
1: uh,
0: that we could uh, implement it with broilers rather than with layers because there's very little research on that and especially fast-growing broilers.
3: Right. Yeah. I've seen, uh, quite a few systems and, uh, even here dry driving around, you know, you'll see some outdoor production and it mm-hmm. tends to be layers. Um, but I haven't seen it as much if you get into an agroforestry kind of application. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, and I, you know, the, the practical part of me just wonders about egg collection and the, and the challenges with that. But, uh, yeah, of course, on the broiler side, you wouldn't have to worry
1: about that.
0: Yeah, that's right. And yeah. uh, with laying hands, I can imagine that uh, that would just mean that you would uh, restrict access to the outdoors until, for instance, a little right. later in the morning, midday, sure. to ensure that the X la- yeah. relates first
3: and then the birds can go out yeah an egg hunt is fun but you know you probably don't want to do one every day that would be be wise yeah well tell us a little bit more if you don't mind about um, about the experiment about the research that you've done and, and some of your findings there
0: Yeah, happy to. So this was a study that was funded by the Southern Sustainable Agricultural Research and Education Program, so the Uh SARE. And uh, the project focuses on fast-growing broiler chickens, but also slow-growing broiler chickens. Uh Uh, And we've tried to uh, especially focus on the animal welfare benefits, but try to incorporate some other aspects too of a silvopasture approach for broilers. Um, this project, we performed an experiment where we housed fast-growing broilers in sort of a pasture-based system. So it's not mm-hmm. really comparable to uh, as, uh, commercial systems, more uh, like small-scale producer type, mm-hmm. where we had mobile coops, where the birds were kept in uh, for the last three weeks of their lives. Right. And uh, we compared birds that had access to a silvopasture, so a pasture mm-hmm. with trees, Two yeah. birds that had access to a sort of a regular open pasture, mm. and what we found was that leg health was improved in the birds that were housed on, in the silvopasture treatment. But it was really good in both uh, treatments. So sure. open pasture, sure. silvopasture, both had really low uh, footpad dermatitis scores, uh, really good gates. Very few birds had poor gates. Right. Um, so that was a really nice finding. Uh, we also saw that birds that were housed in the silver pasture treatment were less fearful when we performed the tonic uh, mobility tests compared to uh-huh. the birds uh, in the open pasture.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's something that um, oftentimes the the public doesn't understand is the the bird's perception of potential threats and, you know, being outside can can present different challenges for the bird, different kinds of threats and, um, yeah, I can imagine that having having the trees would be a, a different experience for the birds. Yeah,
0: definitely. So th- at least in theory, uh, we think that they do feel safer and that is yeah. reflected in that reduced fear. Um, but also it produces a, a little more of a comfortable microclimate because of the shades. Chickens are sure. uh, quite picky in what they prefer in their uh, environmental setting, sort of, so the shady uh, areas with lower temperatures are preferred over like exposure to bright sunlight, especially later in the day.
1: Interesting.
3: Now I wondered about the, the social hierarchies um, when you have some of those visual barriers, if that's also a potential improvement for, for the welfare of the birds. So they're not um, in as much direct visual contact with as many other other birds. I don't know if I'm explaining that well, but oh, yeah, so, I I think that's one thing in our indoor production. You know, the birds could always be encountering other birds they're not used to, and you know, having having more agonistic interactions.
0: Yeah, I could see how uh, having those uh, sort of complexities in their environment, mm-hmm. those barriers that they could get yeah. away from, uh, other birds could be beneficial. I'm not sure if mm-hmm. that's been studied directly yet, right? Uh, but uh, the other benefit in that direction is that some birds will be outside while others may remain inside. There are mm-hmm. individual differences sure. and it yeah. lowers the stocking density for both those groups, which sure. can also reduce some of that uh, negative interaction that might occur Well, when they're all close together.
3: Right, right. Now, another, um, another thing I wondered about is, uh, you know, we worry about avian influenza. Um, and, and potential introduction, especially when birds are outside, and I've, I've wondered if having them in um, a silver uh, pasture system might make it a little bit less likely—at least they would—that they would encounter animals like geese. I don't know about yeah. other birds, but, you know. At least, um, yeah, the migrating geese—if that would reduce the likelihood of that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So I couldn't find more than one study that has sort of touched upon that. So there's definitely a need for more research on that, especially now with avian influenza yep. being such a big issue in the U S right. and in Europe and other countries as well. Right. But uh, there was one pilot study performed in the Netherlands on laying hand farms, and they uh, didn't measure or report anything related to avian influenza specifically, but they mm-hmm. did look at the number of wild birds and compared, compared uh high-risk species like these mm-hmm. other waterfowl Charged. with low-risk species like uh, scavengers, birds of prey, and other mm-hmm. birds. And they did see that there were fewer of those uh, waterfowl-type birds in the silvopasture or agroforestry systems compared to uh, where the pastures were more open, just because that's what the waterfowl, Prefer They prefer open space, access to yeah. a water source. They they need their space to make sure that they're not predated on and that the whole flock can land and forage on the right. grass. But, right. And so that is, as far as I know, the only study that shows that agroforestry reduces, potentially reduces some of mm-hmm. the risk of avian influenza uh, being spread to the poultry
1: flock.
3: Sure. Well, it makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even just... Waterfowl and their patterns of flight, and how they take off and how they land, and yeah, mm-hmm. I would think that yeah, areas with with more trees would not be as well suited. Yeah, so, yeah, interesting. And, uh,
0: because of that and all the animal welfare benefits that can potentially occur, I see a real potential mm-hmm. for pastures in uh, organic farming.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, outdoor yeah. access is already required, and now the USC has, or has, or will sort of change their specifications a bit in terms of space outdoors, space indoors, uh, time mm-hmm. outdoors, and uh, providing a more suitable habitat outdoors that birds will actually use, in this case, poultry birds, will right. actually use to right. um, benefit the birds and the producer greatly.
3: Absolutely, yeah. I, I wonder, and I, I don't know if this has been studied either. But uh, you know, sometimes you see tarps and other things being used for shade, and um, I wonder if the the birds perceive that similarly as trees, or if I, I'm, I'm guessing they probably don't. But yeah, I don't mm-hmm. know if that's been studied or not.
1: Yeah,
0: no, yeah. that's a good point you're bringing up because there's at least one study that I know of. A friend of mine performed that study in Belgium, mm-hmm. so that's why I know it well. Um, they compared artificial structure shelter to Mm -hmm. trees. So in this case, it was slow-growing broilers that were housed like that. And they found that birds used the range more when they had access to the trees rather than these artificial structures. They were like A-frame structures. So the birds really prefer a natural overhead cover from trees, a canopy that over like artificial shelters that are sort of aim to
3: mimic that yeah interesting now in your study um were the the uh fast-growing broilers i assume they were white feathered birds were the slow growing uh, more of a dark feathered or red feathered or uh, yeah yeah does it impact the risk of uh predators at all that was just something especially birds of prey
0: um possibly uh we didn't see uh well, okay, that's not fully true. We had one case of predation mm-hmm. in our sure. experiments uh, where uh, the one of the plots was predated potentially by a raccoon mm-hmm. at night. Uh, we oh, didn't okay. see any predation by birds of prey. So oh, okay. I, I can imagine how being a white bird out in an open pasture is right. a sitting duck, sort of say, for right. a
1: bird of right. prey.
0: Well, right. in a forested area, they may be less conspicuous. So, yeah. potential other benefit, but our study didn't like show enough contrast to be able to really to
3: find that oh sure yeah and that's a, that's would be an awfully hard thing to control I think <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah. yeah maybe you need trained predators I guess but yeah that would be a, that would be a difficult thing to control but yeah certainly you would imagine that in uh, in a forested area uh, forested area the white feathered bird would be a little bit better yeah better camouflage better protected.
1: Yeah, yeah, and
0: possibly the same for the brown-feathered birds as well, because it is sure. hard to see oh. birds if there's a lot of uh, uh, shelter or like canopy around. And birds, the chickens might be able to flee from potential predators too, if they do oh, yeah. attack, because they can hide under right. bushes or behind trees yeah. or whatever, rather that's
3: a good than point.
0: out in the open.
3: Yeah, that's a good point. Now, this this is a silly question that probably just shows the depth of my ignorance, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, for this kind of system, does it matter much if there are also a lot of bushes or shrubs? Is it better if it's just trees or is a mixed kind of landscape okay? Or that Maybe that hasn't been really studied yet. But.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I think uh, bushes can also be preferred by birds, mm-hmm. and maybe a combination mm-hmm. is ideal, but I don't, I don't know the yes. answer to that. Yes, I just thought no. they do like the use the shade. They'll forage underneath bushes, but they'll also forage underneath trees, so they just prefer this sort of more dense canopy cover, mm-hmm. and, and bushes could yeah. be a good sort of quick way to provide some canopy cover over growing trees for
3: years. Right. Yeah. As in that planning process and that staging process, but yeah, Mm -hmm. that's kind of what I was thinking about is the, the labor, the preparation for, for this kind of a system and yeah. How much, uh, if, if there were concerns about particular kinds of plants, any, any different concerns from a just a pasture system. But mm-hmm. I, I couldn't think of too many particular concerns as far as different species in my mind. But again, uh, yeah, not an area I'm too familiar with.
1: Yeah,
0: the, the plant side is also not my expertise, but uh, right. I would recommend to do some research if people are interested in applying a, a silver pasture system because there can be plants that are, toxic for poultry when they absolutely so yeah, that absolutely. you definitely look into the species that
1: are being used before planting them in a poultry pasture yeah sure
3: as as good animal scientists i think anyone should always be mindful of that no matter what kind of animal you have yeah definitely yeah. something to consider yeah I've even had to think about that with our neighbors' animals because uh, they have horses and they're yeah they're able to reach through or, or over the fence. So I got to be careful what I put next to the <laughs> next to the fence. But yeah, you know, I'm really curious what we can learn. Um, what we can learn from these systems that we might be able to apply um, even to potentially even to indoor systems? Are there any lessons we can learn that, that we might be able to take into other other settings?
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, this sort of outdoor silvopasture system provides a really complex environment, right? So it's mm-hmm. quite different than an indoor system that is generally designed to be very homogeneous.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
0: uh, for broilers especially, it's feeders, drinkers, right. litter, other chickens. That's like the sort mm-hmm. of the basic setup of a, a broiler chicken house. So the birds have less space indoors. There's less environmental diversity. Uh, they don't have access to insects generally or to plant material to forage on. Uh, but they're also protected from uh, potential pathogens more indoors than outdoors. So there's benefits to keeping them that way. I think when, if we want to translate this sort of outdoor access to the indoors, uh, more space is one aspect, mm-hmm. uh, more variety, for instance, in uh, substrates or litter access, mm-hmm. they do mm-hmm. have access to shavings, right, that's at right. some point mixed with fecal material, but maybe a variation of uh, litter material could provide some of that complexity. and. Uh, Even some type of overhead covers, then probably you won't be able to provide trees. But uh, huts will be used by birders specifically. Uh, Dark brooders, when the birds are young, uh, Mm -hmm. seem uh, very beneficial for chicks um, during the first weeks of life. Uh, Maybe like scattering feed, uh, seeds to sort of mimic that opportunity to forage on different feed types besides just uh, commercial feeds are some sure. ways I think the outdoor access could be made indoors.
3: Yeah. It's interesting because even if you, yeah, even if you create that more complex environment, um, unless you provide more space, it's probably difficult for the birds to really take advantage of that or interact with that more complex environment, unless the stocking densities are a little bit lower.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, well, In part, you'll have to adapt the complexities to the number of birds, which can be quite labor intensive. Uh, It it must be hard to put out 500 huts so that birds can have some access to cover. So there's definitely limitations for the producer in that case, but there can be uh, ways to overcome that too, like bigger platforms as sort of Mm -hmm. uh, a way that birds can hide under, but then also... Perch on top. Yeah. So there oh, are ways to make uh, complexity a little easier by just using larger structures, maybe that it can be
1: yeah.
0: bleed up uh, at the end right. of a flock. So, yeah, I think there's definitely potential to allow for some variety variety and diversity within the house mm-hmm. so that birds can make some choices.
3: Right. Now, in, uh, in a silver pasture system, uh, and and in your study, I, sh- I should ask particularly for your study. They provided with um, with supplemental feed. Are there um, are there particular times where they're limited access to that, so they can be provided with supplemental feed? How does how does that all work?
0: Yeah. So for broilers, you definitely have to feed them. You cannot have them just feed off the land, basically, especially if you want uh, like commercial production. So in our experiments. Uh, we made sure that they always had access to feed indoors mm-hmm. in, the, in their coops, yeah. uh, which they sat on the, for the majority of time, but they mm-hmm. definitely also took in plant material, like they ate the grass, uh, maybe mm-hmm. insects too. I'm not 100% sure about that. Right, uh, with right. with slow-growing uh we're working with uh, regener- regenerative agriculture uh broiler production systems in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. and They are using a silvopasture system in their uh, system. And they do choose to provide feed outdoors for the birds mm-hmm. to stimulate mm-hmm. use of that range. So that means that right. the uh, producer will have to put out the food and then bring it back in later right. on. And that's more for small-scale production. This These sure. are flocks. Fifteen
3: hundred birds instead of how many thousands in you know, a large scale production system. Right, right. Yeah, boy, some kind of automated uh, feeder system that would work in, in that outdoor setting would be would be pretty interesting. Yeah,
1: yeah. 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 yeah I think I'd be interested in
3: that. Too. Yeah, yeah. But then I I wonder too if does that does that attract. Does it attract mice or other animals when you have the feed out tonight? Yeah, there's always... Yeah,
0: those are some potential risks, definitely. Um, so that's in part also why you have to make sure that the feed is not just out there continuously yep. so that uh, right. animals are not attracted at night, for instance.
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, so there
0: are some challenges there. So I think mm-hmm. maybe the easiest way is to make sure that feed is indoors uh, and that birds can find other... Things
3: to do, things to eat outdoors. Right, right. I to me one of the most interesting things about all of this is the the degree to which it pushes us to really know and understand the animal. And uh, in in expanding ways beyond what we what we think we know into looking at yeah. what is the animal really experiencing and how are they perceiving their surroundings and it yeah, it's just very interesting from that yeah. aspect. That's the
0: challenge, (laughs) trying to find out what chickens really want. You think you provide them the best you can in certain situations, especially in our work where we're trying to contrast like highly complex environments with more barren, like conventional environments to make sure that the birds uh, feel great and have the best they can have. And then they don't respond the way you expect them to. And it makes (laughs) it keeps it interesting, I
3: guess. Right, right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Still
3: trying to figure out what makes a chicken happy. Oh sure, absolutely. Now on the uh, on the practical standpoint, from the consumer side, I'm curious. Cost wise, do you envision that there would be much of a cost difference between uh, just a, a open pasture system and a silva pasture system? Um, would the do you feel like there's a um, a perceived benefit to the consumer that might allow for any cost differences. I'll stop there because, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm not sure how how those things shake out.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I hope there won't be too big of a cost difference for the consumer. It depends how it's set up. Of course, um, I envision, as I said, the benefit for organic producers Mm -hmm. to convert open pastures to silvopastures has an initial cost that comes with the trees, not with the birds per se, uh, because Mm -hmm. they already grow them. They have all infrastructure in place for birds. So the extra cost is the trees, and hopefully they provide that extra source of income for the producer as you use one plot of land for two purposes. So I'm hoping uh, that that means that the cost is reduced even. Uh, if right. there's more income to be made from those two sources.
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, and then in terms of consumer experience, uh, there is not a lot of research about this. It's such a specific sure. topic, right? But there was one a study that did look uh, at a taste panel's responses to birds that were grown in an agroforestry system, so in a Uh single pasture system versus indoors. Uh, And they found that the taste panel evaluated the meat as being uh, juicier. Mm. Uh, They found it uh, to be less fibrous and more tender than the meat that was grown indoors. So Uh there is a perceivable difference in meat quality, or at least there can be. Uh, right. Other changes could be color because uh, outdoor access means generally that birds are more active. So they have more exercise and sure. their diet, diet changes a bit because they feed on insects and plant material outdoors. So this means that meat is generally more yellow and more red, especially right. the meat on the around the legs.
3: Sure. And I, I'm sure consumers are becoming at least a little more aware of um you know, the, the potential for insects as a, as a food source. So mm-hmm. that, the fact that the birds are eating insects is probably not as frightening as what it might have been you yeah. know, <laughs> decades ago. <laughs> yeah. Of course, I mean, that, nothing around that has changed. Even with indoor birds, if they can find one, they'll, they'll eat it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but I think that's, that awareness, I'm sure, is growing among consumers. And so it's yeah, probably less of a concern. I could imagine if I think of the small pasture we have in the back part of our property, I can imagine that allowing that to go into an agroforestry system might even be less labor because, mm-hmm. I mean, I spend yeah, a significant amount of time cutting trees out of the pasture because, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're just growing it for hay and yeah, mm-hmm. that's, we don't need the trees in there, but if we yeah. wanted them there, I'd just be able to let them go. So it
1: could even yeah. be less work. Yeah.
0: Well, it depends, of course, also on the trees and the yeah. product that you get from the tree. So, if it is fruits, um, yeah. you may have to maintain, uh, cut the trees, may oh, have sure. to yeah. select the fruit, right? So, it might
3: yeah.
0: or is likely to be some extra work mm-hmm. related to growing the trees.
3: Sure, sure. But extra, extra potential too for yeah. food production. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
0: it has uh, great benefits for the environment as well. Like sure. Trees uh, yeah. store carbon more so Absolutely. than uh, bushes or like smaller vegetation. So it reduces greenhouse gas emission. Uh, there's more biodiversity in forests than uh, if you just yeah. have open grasslands. Uh, it protects mm-hmm. from soil erosion. So there's benefits yeah. or potential benefits on all sides of the spectrum.
3: Absolutely. Even benefits of, of having more trees on, uh, on commercial farms that use indoor production. <laughs>
1: yeah, been, definitely. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, even as simple as farm aesthetics, it might just yeah. look nicer. It could yeah. produce some of the dust and odor yeah. distribution that comes from farms. It may shade yeah. the houses, so provide mm-hmm. some cooler microclimates in the house as well. So, trees are a win. <laughs>
3: That's right. That's right. Well, it's an exciting time to be thinking about all these things. I, yeah, mm-hmm. I just really find it fascinating now I did wonder if we could also um, talk a little bit about because I and I know virtually nothing about this so it, it's really interesting to me if you could just chat a little bit about testing birds in groups or pairs versus individual birds I think this is something you have some some experience in and so just help us understand how that how that works a little bit sure
0: yeah so as part of uh, the work in my lab it, it's to find out how chickens uh, experience their environment and experience how we manage them. So we want to try and find out how they feel uh, or um, yeah, how they experience these things. And we came across with some of the behavioral testing that we performed was that a lot of birds in the beginning weren't very responsive to our tests. For instance, we Perform an attention bias test where Mm -hmm. you place them in an arena. You um, play an alarm call that's recorded from a chicken uh, alarming the flock that there's a predator around. And then you wait for the birds to go from sort of the vigilant, anxious Mm -hmm. birds to relaxing, relaxing noticing there's actually no predator and then just go about their way and maybe start feeding. So Mm -hmm. we usually measure the latency to feed in those tests. And we found when we tested birds individually is that none of the birds ever sort of got over that initial vigilance of that threat. They were just so scared of the environment that we put them in, of that uh, call Mm -hmm. that we played, that they just sat there and, didn't respond at all right so yeah so that's how we came uh to the to to the idea or onto the idea really that maybe we should be testing these birds together rather than individually because they are social species and it's stressful for them to be isolated so we started performing this test uh in groups of three birds Mm -hmm. It, it made it a little challenging because you have to record and uh code their behavior it's three birds at the same time instead of just one
1: so that was a
0: little bit of a learning curve but we saw that a much more like sort of birds responding in the test rather than them just sort of sitting it out at being so anxious that they did nothing we saw that being with their Handmates helped overcome yeah. some of that anxiety that was caused by being in this novel environment and hearing oh, that yeah. call. Yeah. So, yeah, that's really how it started. Then um, we worked on another cognitive bias test, developing it for birders. And again, it started with initially just individual birds, training them uh, to discriminate between a positive and a negative
1: cue. Mm-hmm. and.
0: Training them just was really hard. We trained 36 birds or intended to train 36 birds, but Mm -hmm. we're only able to train nine because they just couldn't uh, get it. Basically they didn't show these active responses because again, they were afraid, they were isolated, they didn't get it. So we uh, recently performed this test uh, in pairs, this in this side with slow-growing broiler. so all of this previous work yes. was with fast-growing broiler. so there could be a genetic nope. strain difference too. Sure. Uh, but we saw that the social pair approach was really successful for this judgment bias oh, no. test where they had to discriminate. And uh, we had a really high success rate with the training where um, I think 20 out, out of 24 birds were successfully wow. Discriminate between the cues, which was uh, one of the highest reported in other studies as well. So we're really happy with that result.
3: No kidding! Wow. Oh, now does it matter if um, do do the birds have to be housed together before, or can they be? Yeah. Yeah. That is how
0: we at least tested it. We didn't want to introduce new birds, so we always uh, tested pairs of birds repeatedly so that uh-huh. they learn all the tasks as a pair so that they yeah, knew each other.
3: Interesting. And I wonder if they would respond differently if they were, if they were housed individually for a long period of time um, and tested individually versus mm-hmm. housed in a group and then tested individually. I don't know. I, yeah.
0: yeah. They're sort of used to being alone and then
3: right.
1: yeah. But right. then it
0: could also be that being housed on their own is chronically distressing because they exactly. just yeah. have that need for being with other chickens.
3: Absolutely, yeah.
0: Really go both ways.
3: Sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. I I feel like I've witnessed this and just not really known it. You know, if <laughs> I, if we had birds in a pen and we're, we're trying to collect those birds. And then when it's down to the last bird and you it's just you and that bird. Well, you have that bird's full attention. And <laughs> but when there's, you know, more of a group, they they'll run from you, but then they're in the group and they kind of yeah forget about it. But yeah.
0: There is a very distinct call that birds will vocalize. When they are mm-hmm. alone, anyone I think working with chickens will know that. that like, if you have yeah. that last bird in a pen, or if you're weighing uh-huh. a bird and it's like on its own for a little bit, you'll hear that sort of social oh, yes. isolation alarm call.
3: Yes, yeah, uh, I can imagine the the coding of that with multiple birds would be would be a challenge. I wonder if down the yeah. road there could be artificial intelligence tools trained to trained to help with that, perhaps. Yeah, but, yeah. I hope yeah.
0: so. Guess, yeah. yeah. The downside of working on animal behavior is that it's a lot of sort of manual coding of behavioral responses. So I'm really hoping that this technology um, keeps yeah. developing towards more automated assessment of behavioral responses and makes our life a little
1: easier.
3: Yes, absolutely. Even just indiv- uh, identifying individual animals. There's so much potential there, mm-hmm. um, even for animals that we can't tell apart. <laughs> but,
1: yeah. Yeah. yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, great. Well, any, anything that we haven't chatted about yet with, uh, with the systems that, that you'd like to yeah, throw out there?
0: I really want to emphasize that these self pressure systems... Have a potential benefit for the birds because it meets their natural habitat more, has potential for the environment with uh, carbon emissions being reduced. And Mm -hmm. then a potential for the farmer as a potential extra source of income and maybe even greater job satisfaction too.
3: Sure. And I think especially with those first two, the benefit for the bird, benefit for the environment, that provides potential benefit for marketing, uh, you know, to consumers that that really are looking for that, which is a growing number. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Great.
2: It's time for our Famous Three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Adaseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable way. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. When it comes to raising healthy animals, you need more than the right solutions. You need the right partner who brings decades of industry expertise and a global team to put that knowledge to work for the advancement of your operation. At Fibro Animal Health Corporation, we are proud to work with you as your trusted partner. All
3: right. Well, we've appreciated your time, and as our as our time starts to wrap up, a couple of questions we'd like to ask. Three questions, and uh, so the first one is: Do you have a favorite poultry-related book or resource? And that can be a website or a podcast or anything. Yeah, anything poultry-related.
0: Sure. Yeah. So I'm a extension specialist as well, so I don't only sure. really do research, but I try to help yeah. people with poultry questions. And a lot you of poultry ahead. questions are related to poultry health. And I'm not a veterinarian because I thought veterinary medicine was boring. So <laughs> I find uh, the poultry DVM website very helpful, which is yes. um, health concerns, potential ways yeah. to solve it or prevent it uh, as a way yeah. to help small, mostly small poultry flock owners to figure yeah. out what's going on with their birds.
3: Oh, that's great! Yeah, very helpful, especially now when a lot of people really they need to be very vigilant. I mean, we always do, but you know, this is this is a time for to continue that for sure. Mm-hmm. Great. Right, well, how about a, a non-poultry-related book or resource? This could be educational, or it could just be fun.
1: Mm-hmm. Well,
0: I think of a fun one. I am especially a fan of anything uh, Stephen King writes, but I oh, appreciate yes. his. Mr. Mercedes series about a yeah. killer, and then especially Holly Gibney is a very fun character in the books that I enjoy reading
3: about. Oh, you bet! Yeah, I've read most of uh, most of King's works, and including The Bad Decision while I was house sitting uh, in college for my aunt for her very old creaky house, and that's when I <laughs> decided to read it, which was not oh, a good- yeah. Not a good idea. It was a sleepless summer for the most part, but yeah, I've had yeah. the
0: occasional nightmare after reading books. That's
3: right, but you know, it kind of it kind of gets you going a little bit too, and that's yeah, mm-hmm. having a little bit of that is okay. So, yeah. Well, and then the last question, I think this is um, especially relevant because I I don't know. I assume this applies to lots of different animal sciences programs, but I feel like we have more and more students who really do have that interest in behavior and certainly an interest in animal welfare. And so I wanted to see if you, if you have advice, what's your advice for somebody who would like to get into those areas, either in general or even specifically with poultry.
0: Yeah. So from, I guess, an academic perspective, I think it's very useful for uh, students to try different things. So, try yeah. to get some experiences in a research lab, get your hands-on experience in some different fields to find yeah, out this is this really for me or did I just think this was fun. So yeah. I, for myself, that was very helpful. And I see it with students too, where it's like, yeah, I never even thought of working with chickens. And now I'm seeing that this is really fun. So
1: right, right.
0: can often be the case for behavioral welfare. There's behavioral work As I said, really can mean a lot of hours after or behind a computer looking at videos. And that's not for everyone. So you really have to be
1: sure
0: about that. And then besides that, try to meet people that are already working in that field and like build a little bit of a network. I've seen uh, that that's often a way to get opportunities just because you've spoken to someone before and you had some type of connection. Then there could be an opportunity there for an internship or a job or a graduate student position, just because you know each other already a little bit. That's right. There is yeah. the potential to, yeah, get ahead in the field.
3: Fantastic. I, I had one other thing occur to me, and along those lines, do you find with your students or with undergraduates, do you uh, do you have to help them kind of fight through the anthropomorphic ideas to get at? okay, for this specific animal that we need to know well, how do the how do the concepts that we think about, whether it's contentment or happiness, how do those apply to that animal rather than me just applying what makes me happy and thinking that's what the animal needs? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that is uh, something that we work on in the lab is mm-hmm. trying to yeah. identify uh, what does happiness look like for a chicken.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And
0: that it's not the same thing. I think the benefit for working with chickens is they are already very different from humans, obviously. So yes. there's not yes. much There's definitely uh, phrasing like when people or students work with chickens where there's like, oh, he was so angry at me and pecked me. And then I'll have to say, like, That's well, true. this is how birds interact, like they'll explore with their beak. It doesn't have to be anger like it can just be that they're trying to figure out who you are what's going on and sort of try to yeah limit some of the interpretations that might uh sort of jump ahead in our brain and try to like keep it let's look at this objectively what do we see and what do we know
3: yeah well, that, that's great. Great advice. Uh, tremendously interesting research. I, I'm really looking forward to kind of following this now and, and learning more about it as we move forward. So thanks again for sharing your time, Dr. Jacobs. We, we've appreciated it. Love hearing from you and yeah, hopefully uh, we'll have a chance to hear from you again sometime down the road.
0: Yeah, happy to. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, this was
3: fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you.
4: Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemanics where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness but let's face it putting it into practice can be a daunting task it's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how but don't worry we've got you covered with our experienced team at the help we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.